There was a, a famous older man who had contracted a terminal illness and was in the hospital awaiting the last days of his life. And a young reporter came to visit him to just ask a few questions. And at some point in the conversation slash interview, the, the question was asked by the reporter. She said, sir, can you tell me what it's like to know that you're dying? And he thought for just a second, and he responded with a question, and he asked her, well, can you tell me what it's like to pretend that you're not? You see, the reality is, is that a hundred percent of us will die. You know, we make up a lot of statistics, but this is one that's it's pretty true. A hundred percent of people will die, and, and once we come to grips with that reality, it helps us better understand that there, in fact, are people in this world who are hurting those who are dying. And if we are to be the hands and feet of Jesus, I, I think it's appropriate that we prepare ourselves to better minister to those. Uh, and so this is my shameless plug, I guess I should say, for you to stay around, stick around for classes uh, this morning, because we're going to begin a study on grief. And grief is not only uh, losses that occur through death, but that's a major one. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about how do we come to grips with our own mortality, uh, how do we minister to others, uh, and how do we prepare when our, our loved ones are going through an illness. Because the fact is, is that as we go out into our world, into our work, into our neighborhoods, we come in contact with people who are devastated by loss. And we have an opportunity to reach out to them. Uh, too often, though, we don't really know what to say, so we either avoid them uh, or we try to say something really deep and spiritual, like God wanted your child to die. And we leave them more scarred than when we met them. And so we're going to talk about over the course of the next few months... Uh, what are some things that we can say? What are some things that we can do? And, and maybe what are some things that we shouldn't say? And so we're going to try to work through that together. So I'm going to encourage you after we uh, finish with uh, this particular part of our worship portion, as we uh, go into a class format, that's still worship, it's just called a little bit different. But we're going to ask you to hang around uh, this morning and join us for a study to help us to be more like the hands and feet of Jesus in this community. Uh, and, and one more note I'll make on this before we go. Uh, there is some construction being done in the quads. And so this morning we're not going to meet there for class. We'll, we'll just stay around in here after you get your kids to class. And uh, So uh, once, w once we dismiss for class, we'll count heads and we'll make sure that if you, you walk out, we're, we're going to make sure you come back in. That was funnier in my head, but I guess that wasn't quite as funny. Let's go ahead and begin with a prayer.
God, you are awesome and you are good. And we do not believe in any way that you are a God who created the world, wound it up and stepped back to see it self-destruct. We believe that you are a God who loves us, who works and a God who is alive and a God who calls us to minister to those who are grieving, those who are in difficult times in their life. And Lord, I pray that we all understand that you have never, ever left us. We want to give thanks and praise and glory to you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. It's good to be back home. It really is. It's good to have an opportunity to get to preach again. I, I had uh, a week off and uh, then another week off and then another week off. And I, I was here and people were wondering, well, was there a conversation between the elders and Doug? You know, is he going to be phased out? Uh, but I'm still here. Uh, and the truth is, it's not that easy to get rid of me. But it's been a long time since we've had an opportunity to look at the Sermon on the Mount, so I want to give us a very quick look at what has taken place over the course of the last 42 verses in about eight weeks. Uh, we, We looked at the Beatitudes, which was less of a list of things that we need to do to be good people, and it was more talking about a God who loves us, and even when we mourn, and even when we're meek, and even when we hunger and thirst, we can be blessed, we can be happy, because we have a God who meets our needs and who does not leave us hungry and poor and broken. And then we looked at the, the salt and the light, how each one of us has, has been called, not simply to be a spice, but to be a preservative and a reminder of the delivering, redeeming God that chose to send His Son. And then there was the fulfillment of the law that reminds us that Jesus didn't come simply to reiterate what God said. He came to live it out. And then we got into these six antitheses, is what we've been referring to them as over the last few weeks. The first one, the NIV title calls it murder, but it's not really about murder. It's about anger, which is a little touchy because most of us don't have to worry about murdering people, but sometimes we do get a little angry, right? Whether you know we're driving down the road and somebody cuts us off or our sister at the dinner table at Thanksgiving makes another comment that we've just had enough of. And so that's a little closer to home. And then we talked about adultery, which was less about adultery and it was more about lust. More about living pure lives. And then there was the topic of divorce, which was less about divorce and it was more about marriage. About honoring God. Marriage, adultery, divorce, and then oaths. This is probably the one that you don't remember, but you remember in some way. Oaths was less about your yes and yet be yes and your no, no. And it was more about being people of integrity. That it wasn't just about um, swearing. It was about doing what God has called us to do all the time. And in case you've forgotten any of these sermons, you'll at least remember that during the oaths, there was some disrobing that took place. So make sure if you've forgotten what that sermon was about, it was about being people of integrity. And I, I, hopefully we can somehow draw that out. And so now as we're, we're closing in, we looked at several weeks ago an eye for an eye. Uh, and that's the hardest I've ever been slapped in my life. 
And I'm especially thankful for Brevin for doing that and reminding us um, that sometimes being a living example uh, can be a lot more painful um, than actually just reading out the story. But an eye for eye really talked about grace. Grace and the fact that um, we um, don't give people something that they deserve. And this week, we're going to take a look at love for your enemies. And so if you will join me, if you have your Bible with you, open it up. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. But I want to ask you, whatever version you have, open up because I want your eyes to come across the words in which Jesus said as we talk about love and what does it really mean. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends His reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as our heavenly Father is perfect. That last line really kind of throws us for a loop. And we're going to look at that, but not before we talk about what love really is. Grace and mercy is what I want to talk about this morning. It's one thing... To withhold judgment on someone and offer them, as we talked about several weeks ago, is mercy. Because they deserve that, but we're not going to give them what they deserve. And we can, we can do that. It's possible. But what about this idea of grace? About giving people something that they don't deserve. You see, of all the antithesis that we looked at, this is the sixth and final one, and it seems like Jesus saved the best, and when I say the best, I really mean the most difficult for last. How do we show love to people who don't deserve it? How do we not only withhold judgment and punishment, But how do we give them love? Jesus is really clear about this. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. Leviticus chapter 19 talks about this over and over again. But the question is, who said, hate your enemy? Do people say that? Yes, they do. It's okay to hate your enemy, right? They, they did something wrong to you and, and you have a right to hate them. In fact, really, if you want to be a good person, you have to hate them. Because they're bad and they do evil things. You, that's certainly what the Jews taught. In fact, it was written by Josephus, one of the ones who looked around at, at 
the different cultures of the time and in the first and second centuries. And when he looked at the Jews, he noted that they were referred to as man-haters. They felt as though they were supposed to love their neighbors, and of course that was a small group of people who they considered their neighbors, but everybody else, it was okay to hate them. In fact, it was their obligation to hate them. Jesus turns the tables in a big way. And this is easy to talk about on paper and to read the text of it, but how many of you have had an enemy before? I, I, I actually, how many of you can say, at one point in my life, I labeled somebody as my enemy? Has anybody done that before? And I'm not saying this is what it should look like. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm a person who has said, that person is my enemy. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever felt that way before? And then all of a sudden, God's response is through Jesus is to say, you pray for these people? I remember when I had identified someone, not only as my enemy, but as a monster. Someone who would say and do such terrible things to hurt people, including myself and my family. And I decided this person was definitely my enemy. And although I was in the process of teaching a class on forgiveness, I wasn't quite there myself. And Jennifer and I were talking, and I, I had just been kind of hurt. And I remember telling Jennifer, I just, I, I can't shake this. This is, it's really bothering me. And, and my beautiful wife, uh, just not on the outside too, she's beautiful on the inside. She said something really hurtful to me, very painful. She says, Doug, I, have, have you started praying for them? What? Those are the things we talk about from the pulpit. Those aren't the things that we really do. I mean, it's one thing for the preacher to read and say, yeah, you you should pray for your enemies. But you know, that's not fair. You can't go there. And you know what I told her? I said, I don't want to pray for that person. Reminds me a lot of the story of Jonah. We looked at this several months ago. I love the story of Jonah. God comes to Jonah and he says, Jonah, you know what I want you to do? I want you to go and I want you to preach to the Ninevites. The Ninevites, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria, they're bad people. I mean, really, really bad people. Uh, I don't know if any of you watch Veggie Tales, if you've seen that before. But in Veggie Tales, the Ninevites are so bad that they take fish and they slap each other on the face with them. Um, and, and that's how VeggieTales chooses to talk about the Ninevites. But these are bad people, the Assyrians. In fact, if you look in history, less than a century later, they're going to come in and they're going to thump Israel and take them off into captivity. And, and Jonah knows that these are bad people. God says, go to Nineveh. He says, okay. He doesn't argue. I mean, Moses at least argued. He didn't argue. But instead of going... Up to Nineveh, he went down to Tarshish, and he was, of course, going to sail. And the one part we remember about Jonah is the big fish or the whale who, you know, swallowed him up, and he had this this beautiful prayer, and then it spit out. And this time God says, go to Nineveh, and he says, okay, and he does. You know, how many fish do you need to be inside before you decide you're going to listen to God? And so he goes... Uh, into Nineveh. It's a three-day journey into Nineveh. He goes in one day, 
one day. Doesn't even make it halfway into the city. And by the Hebrew text, we know that he says five words. Basically, he says, you're going to die. In a few days, God's going to come and he's going to kill you. There was no message of repentance. And so he walks out and he's going up to the hill because he's ready for the fireworks. Because he knows God's about to do to Nineveh what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he wants to get a good seat. And the people of Nineveh do something crazy. They, they repent and the, the king comes up and he says, you know, we, we need to repent. And maybe, perhaps... God will have mercy on us. And they took sackcloth and put it on themselves and their animals. On their animals, they put sackcloth. And God changed his heart. And he chose not to destroy him. And Jonah, he's sitting up on top of this mountain, this hill, and he's... he's Kind of looking around like, when's, when's the show going to start? And he learns that God's not going to destroy the people that he hates. And a lot of times we read this as a beautiful passage. And in fact, this might be a verse that you have plastered on your wall. Beautifully, beautifully framed. But God, you are a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. But that's not how Job said it. Here's basically the conversation. God says, I'm not going to kill him. And Jonah says, I knew it! I knew it! I knew you would bring me here. These people are worthless and they're no good and they're our enemies. And I knew if I came here and I said what I was supposed to say, that you would forgive them. And that you wouldn't destroy them. Because you're a compassionate God and you're slow to anger and you're abounding in love. That was an indictment that Jonah spewed out towards God. He didn't want God to show mercy. Forget compassion. Wipe them off the face of the earth. He said, God... Make them a grease stain in the desert. I don't ever want to see the Assyrians again. And if you love your people, that's what you're going to do. That's the conversation. Makes me a little uncomfortable. It makes me most uncomfortable because I've been Jonah sitting up on the hill thinking, God, I'm ready, let's go. You know these people are no good. I know these people are no good, so let's just go ahead and get this over with. And Jesus, He says, pray for those who persecute you. Well, if you give it enough time, maybe. Maybe if the pain was long enough ago and the healing has occurred, then it's okay to pray for them. I mean, but you've got to wait a good couple, three, six, eight years, maybe, before you're going to consider this, you know, praying. The Old Testament is filled specifically with Psalms, filled with prayers, not praying for the enemies, but praying against the enemies. Read through the Psalms and read how the the different psalmists say, 
would you please just destroy my enemy because of what they have done? They have ridiculed me, and it is time for payback. And Jesus says, I want you to pray for your enemies. And here's what really gets me. And this is what bothers me. I mean, I, I, I could get that maybe 10 years later, you should say, okay, let's start this healing process. You know, I've gone long enough, and the hurt's been bad enough. The Greek is very interesting here, and don't ever let me pretend that I'm a scholar because I'm not. Um, I know just enough to be dangerous, but I do have commentaries that I read, and they are filled with scholars who say smart things. Uh, and one of the things that they talked about here was this word persecute. Those who persecute you. You see, when you look at the Greek, Based on the ending, it's going to tell you a whole lot of things. It's going to tell you if it's past tense or present tense or future tense. It's going to talk about different voices in which uh, it was. But one in particular, it's going to talk about whether it was a one-time deal or it's a continuous and ongoing. And we're in really big trouble. Because when we read it in the Greek... The word persecute you is not past tense. It's present tense. And the voice was not one time that happened. It's continuous. Jesus is saying, pray for those who are persecuting you right now. This would make it just as uncomfortable to us as it did to the original hearers of those words. There is no doubt that the Jews of that day had many enemies, not the least of which was the Roman soldier that we talked about, the tax collector who was the, the, the cheater the traitor, the extorter. And then basically there's the Gentiles who they are obviously not Jews and so God doesn't care about them. They can be our enemies too, which by the way, let's not forget that we're all the Gentiles. And Jesus says, pray for those. Why? Why should we pray for them? Well, if you pray for them, then maybe things will get better. Sure, things may get better, but that's not really the intent. That's not what Jesus was looking at. I want to read just a very short uh, paragraph from a a commentary sermon on the Mount by Charles Quarles. He says this, Jesus did not command this response to persecution for pragmatic reasons. He did not teach, for example, that loving one's enemy would transform the enemy into a friend, though it may. He did not teach his disciples that they should pray for their persecutors because love diffuses hate, though it may. Jesus' disciples were to love their enemies so that you may be sons of your Father 
in heaven. He didn't say, do this so that you can be friends again, or you can fix the situation, or you can feel really good about yourself because you prayed. He says, do this so that you can be my children. I remember the conversation in our kitchen when Jennifer said, you really need to start praying for them. I don't always listen to her. And usually shortly after that is when I get in trouble. But that time, I started to listen a little bit. And thought, maybe, just maybe, God, God can use this for His glory. After all, have I been perfect? I wonder how many people need to pray for me. I wonder how many people thought, I just don't know that I can talk to him anymore. But what we really get out of this is that God desires something more from us than just being angry and broken and hurt. He wants us to be his children. Right after I read this, we're we're right at the end, but I want to share something else because this makes a lot of people really uncomfortable uh, because verse 48 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And at that point, that's when we check out, right? Because anybody who's in any way remotely honest with themselves says, Well, perfection's not going to happen. I lost that a long time ago. Even if I started fresh today, I don't know about you, if anybody made the New Year's resolution, January 1 came around and says, this year I'm going to be perfect. I mean, that resolution probably made it to lunch on that day, and it was broken. And I, I don't think that we need to in any way read that God is saying, hey, you have to be perfect and you can't make any mistakes. Well, No, there's one perfect person, and you're not him. That was Jesus uh, the Greek word also can be translated as mature, or, or what I really like is the word complete. That we can be made complete, and that we can be reconciled to our God. We're about to begin looking at more specifics to how we can love those who have hurt us, and how we can reach out. But this week, I'm going to ask you to do something that Jesus asked you to do. I'm just relaying the message. I want you to think about the people in your life who've hurt you. And I want you to start praying for them. And I'm not asking you to pray for them so that that relationship may be renewed, though it might. I want to ask you to do it because... That's what Jesus did for us. You see, Jesus can say these words because in Luke 23, He lived them. As He hung on the cross, He said these words, Father, 
forgive them. With the warm blood running down his face, with the spit covering him, with the nails in his hands and his feet, as the soldiers are betting for his clothes, he says, forgive them. May we be like Jesus and that we love, pray, and forgive our enemies, our friends, and our family. May we be a people who show that love to others. But we fail. And so there is an opportunity this morning as we do every morning, really every day, to start fresh. But if there's a way that we can help you in that process of healing and praying and forgiving, we want to be there for you. We want you to know that as you probably are accustomed to, there's an opportunity for you to come forward and we can pray for you right now. We also want you to know that we will have an elder back in our family room right there. And if they can pray with you and pray for you, we want to do that as well. If there's any way we can serve you this morning, please come as we stand and sing.